1: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today my guest is John T. Seidel, and we'll be talking about Republicanism, Communism, Islam, Cosmopolitan Origins of Revolution in Southeast Asia, out with Cornell University Press in 2021. Professor Seidel received his BA and MA from Yale and his PhD from Cornell University, He was fortunate enough to have been mentored by both James C. Scott and Benedict Anderson. I'm very jealous. Uh, He is the author of Capital, Coercion, and Crime, Bossism in the Philippines, out with Stanford in 1999, Riots, Pogroms, Jihad, Religious Violence in Indonesia, out with Cornell in 2006, and The Islamist Threat in Southeast Asia, A Reassessment, out with Honolulu's East-West Center in 2007. He has also co-authored... Philippine politics and society in the 20th century, colonial legacies, post-colonial trajectories, and thinking and working politically in development, coalitions for change in the Philippines. Professor Seidel was previously at the School of Oriental and African Studies, but since 2004 has held the Sir Patrick Gillum Chair in International and Comparative Politics in the Department of Government and International Relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Dr. Seidel. John if I may Please. welcome to new books in history
0: many thanks
1: thanks for having me so I've been, I've been following your work over uh, over the years and I'm really excited to chat with you um, Same. and 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 before we get into um, republicanism communism islam cosmopolitan origins of revolution in southeast asia wow. would you please tell us a little bit about yourself um in you know looking at your uh, your personal website i was amused to learn that we both initially pursued russian studies but uh wow. also both ran away to southeast asia yeah. my story is that i flunked out of russian three and uh, also realized that the weather food and surfing was much better in southeast asia than in what was then the soviet union um but tell us how you became a Southeast Asianist. What drew you to the region? I'm sure your, uh, your reasons are much more profound than, uh, than mine.
0: <laughs> no, I think my, my reasons are, are probably more disreputable and, and reflect badly on me, perhaps as many sort of white middle class uh, American men who end up in Southeast Asia. Um, so I, I, I was very seriously uh, interested in uh, Russia and the then Soviet Union, and I studied Russian in high school, I spent the summer between high school and university in Moscow and Leningrad studying Russian. I kept studying Russian throughout university and um, even took a course called something like Soviettska publicistica where we read and, and discussed you know the latest uh, you know developments in the Soviet press about Gorbachev and what was happening then. I used to have a subscription to Pravda. So so I I was, you know, really into it. Um, But then uh, the story is uh, that my high school girlfriend, my high school sweetheart, her father-in-law became the U.S. ambassador to the Philippines. And uh, so with her invitation, I ended up um, in Manila in the summer of 1985 with an internship in the political section of the embassy, thanks to this nepotism and a top secret security clearance. Really? And um, and the interesting thing is this, you know, this great book, uh, classic book by uh, Jeffrey Race, War Comes to Long On, um, was you know, given to me by my boss in the political section uh, of the embassy. And he'd served in Saigon in the U.S. embassy there in the early seventies and had overseen what they called a kind of provincial reporting program on the, you know, the Viet Cong, the, the communist insurgency in the provinces. And, and that's so the same years as Operation Phoenix as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, I mean, he's mentioned in that uh, Frank Snepp book, decent Interval, Decent Interval, mm-hmm. this guy. So he's from that era, this guy. And he, he had sort of biked and, and driven all around the Philippines. And he took me to different provinces um, and kind of uh, trained me up in terms of how to interview people. And then said, you're going to write War Comes to Laguna Province, which is a province just south uh, southeast of Manila where you know by mid-1985 if you drove in in an embassy car to any little town in this province you'd see the town was splattered with red graffiti that said mm-hmm. you know long live the new people's army and you know uh, overthrow the u.s marcos dictatorship and so forth and i you know would spend i spent uh, the whole summer you know weeks and weeks trying to get people to talk to me in these little towns in this province and wrote up a report um, on the province, and then I, I came back over. Uh, well, I, I was in Washington D.C. and the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, and then back in the embassy in 1987. So I spent my summers doing this kind of of kind of junior Cold Warrior, um, you know, sort of intelligence gathering research, and and it was fascinating. Um, and so I found it more interesting than the Soviet Union, even in the era of Gorbachev. Um, on the eve of its dissolution, and right. so you're you're, the, you're there in eighty five. Is an, the people power kicking people off yet? People in that? February of eighty six,
1: right? Right. And
0: then I'm the, I'm in Washington as a kind of junior intelligence analyst in the summer of nineteen eighty six. Return in nineteen eighty seven, by which time the U S embassy is deeply involved in uh, promoting counterinsurgency and the CIA station is vastly expanded. And my kind of research is now kind of somehow problematically implicated in all of that. And the places I I travel to during those weeks and those months are likewise, including Davao. Um, So, you know, by the end of this, I think my idea of working for the US government is coming into increasing kind of conflict with Perhaps I would like to think my innate sense of morality, um, but also the the influence of people like Jim Scott and you know my my classmates at the time, um, who were studying the Philippines and other countries in Southeast Asia. So I decided to become an academic instead, and was really still fixated on the Philippines and on local politics in the Philippines. So I ended up doing my PhD research uh, on two provinces in the Philippines, looking at you know how was it that. If at the national level, the dictatorship under Marcos was overthrown in 1986, that at a local level, sort of mini Marcoses were still mm-hmm. dominating local politics.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, that's how you got interested in the Philippines. But um, with this book, you're, you're really a Southeast Asianist. I mean, you and you've written on Indonesia as well. How did you expand across the archipelago and, and, and jump the national boundary between the Philippines to Ooh. Indonesia?
0: Yeah, that's, that's another story. So I was, I was in, uh, you know, I was in a class studying Indonesian, Basa Indonesia as an undergraduate while I I was, um, you know, uh, interested in the Philippines because they didn't have Tagalog at Yale. And so I studied Indonesian with uh, a bunch of people, some of whom went on to be famous Indonesianists like Jeff Winters. Um, and, uh, Jeff Hadler, the late Jeff Hadler. We were classmates there. And so that drew me into, you know, studying Indonesian politics. Um, We would read articles out of Tempo magazine uh, about, you know, the Tanjung Priok incident and Benny Merdani and all the sort of latest developments in Indonesian politics. And so I got hooked on that as well. And then uh, in the mid-1990s, after finishing my research in the Philippines and teaching, uh, beginning teaching at the School of Oriental and African Studies, I... Ended up beginning to travel to East Java and ended up spending a year in Surabaya in 1997-1998, the final months of the Suharto era, um, looking at what it began to evolve as uh, a pattern of rioting um, that then spread to different parts of the country and then morphed into new forms of religious violence after the fall of Suharto in 1999 and thereafter.
1: And that, and that became riots, pogrom, jihad. Yeah. 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 Um, that's interesting that you were in uh, the Philippines in '85, and there was a big change, and then you were in Surabaya in '97, and then there was a big change.
0: Yeah, there, there are there are some people who have have <laughs> unfounded suspicions about me, but I guess you know the, the bigger the bigger picture is is a more narrowly conventional academic picture that I. I went to graduate school and even as an undergraduate, you know, studied with a lot of people and learned a lot about Southeast Asia by reading books and sitting in seminars and listening to lectures and got interested in the region as a whole and was taught by great people and, you know, felt inspired.
1: Yeah. And I mean, what, one of my frustrations with some Southeast Asianists is, and it's, it's because of language and because of existing historiography is, is that many of us have an interest in the region as a whole, but because of disciplinary sort of boundaries, we get siloed into studying a nation state. And, you know, of course, Anthony Reed, Ben Kieran, and there's a whole, whole host of great scholars that, that do Southeast Asia wide stuff. But most of us really get funneled into, um, being a Filipinist or being an Indonesianist or being, you know, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos maybe, um, uh, or actually I think Thailand, Cambodia allows is the, uh, is the, um, the AAS breakdown. So I really love works like this that, uh, transcend these national boundaries and look at the, the region as a whole. Um, so th- this book, again, does this great job of, of looking at different, uh, or different countries and, and looking at Southeast Asia as a whole. Um, so what's your, your elevator pitch for this book? How do you, how do you, what's your short explanation of what you, uh, what you wanted to accomplish?
0: Well, if this is a a pitch to make in an elevator with with someone, I hope it's in a tall building with a Southeast Asianist because the the book is written for Southeast Asianists uh, really rather than political scientists or people interested in revolutions per se. Um, And I think the book is written with this in mind, that uh, Southeast Asian studies, uh, it seems to me, um, is distinctive as a kind of area studies field or two kinds of preoccupations. One is with the kind of authenticity um, or indigeneity of Southeast Asians—that they aren't just, you know, second-rate, um, you know, Chinese or Indian or you know, Catholics or communists. That they're that all of the different ways of understanding the region that might see it um, as uh, you know a, a less um, what's the word, uh, complex, sophisticated, um, grand, great civilization as China or India next door, um, historically have led the really the Orientalists to say, "Well, well, wait a minute, no, this, there is something very special that requires very specialist knowledge, uh, about the region that is, is not just, um, a matter of imitation of emulation. And the most obvious example of this would be Clifford Geertz's The Religion of Java. But I think much of Southeast Asian history, uh, Southeast Asian studies in general, has that kind of emphasis and that inclination to try and say, oh, there's something genuinely local here that you need to understand and to hold on to that. And the second thing is a preoccupation with nationalism that's understandable in the Cold War era. Uh, And, you know, when I came into Southeast Asian studies, you still had a very recent history of uh, Southeast Asia specialists uh, opposing, uh, resisting the Vietnam War, uh, US intervention in Indochina, and really politically trying to show American and other audiences that resistance to colonialism and imperialism couldn't simply be dismissed as communism and uh, fellow travelers, and that there was a kind of you know, powerful uh, nationalist streak in Southeast Asia and among Southeast Asians that animated uh, recent Southeast Asian history. And this then sort of builds up into, you know, the, the context in which Benedict Anderson's book, Imagine Communities, emerges as a classic that transcends Southeast Asian studies and becomes one of the most important books in, you know, Uh, in the study of nationalism and and more broadly. Um, And I think uh, what I'm trying to do in the book is to suggest that um, that perspective that comes out of Southeast Asian studies has by the turn of the 21st century been at least challenged or complemented by an alternative kind of perspective, Um, you know, a, a kind of coherent template that, imagine communities presents for understanding uh, Southeast Asian history as you know the emergence of national consciousness and of of uh, new nation states that that there's an alternative um, picture that a, a range of historians have actually individually and collectively uh, presented as an alternative picture one in which we see Southeast Asians uh, and here's the elevator pitch punchline uh, Southeast Asians are not simply, you know, ineffably Southeast Asian, distinctively Javanese or Tagalog or Vietnamese. Um, and they're not deeply, just deeply nationalist and patriotic, but they're also incredibly cosmopolitan that Southeast Asians are, you know, people of the world and they have been for centuries and they've made incredible contributions to world history in the process. And that, you know, in this era of globalization, of course, somebody inevitably was going to come along and write a book like this. It just happened to be me, but someone else would have written it anyway. That stresses this kind of thing, Um, because in fact, historians have written these kinds of stories now for 20, 30 years, and I'm just pulling them together.
1: Okay, so that was that was the elevator in the Petronas Tower in Kuala. Yeah, sorry, that was not the (laughs) the third floor of Herod's. Or I don't. Does Herod's have an elevator? Yeah, assume they have an elevator. Um, Probably. Yeah, maybe uh, six floors. Yeah, but so I mean, I think you're you know I I think the book is really valuable for world historians, and I'm going to strongly recommend it uh, to other card carrying members of the WHA. I think you do a fantastic job of what so many. Uh, of these volumes on Southeast Asian history, try to do like Lockhart's uh, Southeast Asian World History. You always got to put Southeast Asia in the world to sort of justify its importance to non-Southeast Asianists. So I think this does a fantastic job uh, in, in in several different registers and is really of value to anybody interested in um, you know history of, of uh, global economic integration, revolutionary movements. Um, uh, uh, yeah so so, 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 so many so many so many things of value to world historians mm-hmm. um but in regards to the study of a revolution um, what did you want to um, disrupt challenge or revise in terms of traditional narratives of revolution in Southeast Asia
0: well I, I think um, if you look at the studies of these three revolutions the Philippine Indonesian and Vietnamese revolutions that I think there's a uh, a distinctive, you know, picture that's kind of nationalist and nationalized, um, that these are understood as national revolutions, revolutions for independence led by nationalists for, you know, nationalist reasons. And I think, you know, if you, if you read imagined communities, then you, you must come away with a, a great deal of doubt uh, about this insofar as, um, you know, Anderson tells us that the only people who could possibly be imagining themselves as Filipino, Indonesians, uh, or Vietnamese as such, in, in that kind of nationalist way, by the eve of these revolutions, would have been small numbers of educated and somewhat dandyish
1: men. Um, and yeah, this, il- Filipino illustrados being the classic example. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so
0: then that raises the question about what about the, the broad mass of the population that that participates and that that you know the, the foot soldiers, the people who are 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 waging the revolution through mass mobilization, armed mobilization? How did you how did they get drawn into this? How did they think of themselves if they couldn't possibly have thought of themselves as nationalists, at least at the outset of these struggles? Um, so what explains that and how did they, how did they get mobilized? And also how can we explain the differences between these countries in Southeast Asia, some of which see a revolution, you know, a lot earlier than the others, like the Philippines, the turn of the 20th century before anyone else. Um, and then other sort of mid 20th century revolutions happening in Vietnam or Indonesia alongside countries where a much more suppressed or staged managed, um, pattern of political, uh, Change and decolonization is unfolding, like in Malaya or Malaysia and Singapore. As they become,
1: so in the, I mean, you're a political scientist, um, but this you book have uses to call me that. I don't. <laughs> 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 well, I didn't put scientist in scare quotes, so that okay, wasn't that bad. But, uh, um, yeah. but there, there's, you use a lot of history in here, more more than other works in political science that I've seen, and um, I think you in the acknowledgements you mentioned taking a historical turn. Um, Mm. and each of the chapters offers really a long durée, like a long, not just in, in, I mean, it's, it's like a long durée political history, a long durée economic history, um, Mm. for each of the, uh, the countries in question. Why was it so important for you to take this, um, I really hate this term but sort of this deep dive into the history of these case studies much much further back than comparable works of um political science on 20th century revolution
0: yeah um i i think for me you know the the whole discipline of political science has long been and and has increasingly become a field of study where a kind of economistic form of thinking prevails um, that that politics uh, you know operates like uh, like it's imagined that markets operate with sort of disembedded individuals you know as sort of consumers and producers and political entrepreneurs and the like in a kind of political market that's how it's imagined and that allows for a certain kind of you know game theoretic modeling and it allows for quantification but that rests on what you know the, the kind of premise that that uh, that I would associate with Margaret Thatcher and her, her famous saying that there's no such thing as society. And, and my sense is that uh, there is such a thing as society. And if we look at Southeast Asia, that we should be contextualizing uh, politics, as in other parts of the world, as embedded within societies and societies that are historically constructed um, rather than cultures. And, and for me, this is perhaps a a way of thinking about the potential for Southeast Asian studies, a kind of comparative historical sociology of Southeast Asia in which you see that, you know, societies are formed, religious institutions, social classes, states are formed in different ways and that those differences matter. They, they shape the parameters of the, the possible for politics. Um, in different ways, so that you know, Indonesian politics and Philippine politics are different in ways that you can only understand if you have that contextualization. So for me, that kind of um, you know, that a deep dive, um, you know, it, it, it goes back to perhaps studying Barrington Moore and other comparative historical sociologists as an undergraduate, and and being much more intrigued by, impressed by, interested in that kind of comparative politics form of political science than anything more pseudo-scientific uh, along the, the lines of the discipline of economics, which is now prevailing, especially where I teach at the London School of Economics and <laughs> Data Science. I mean, political science, sorry. <laughs> uh.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that um, That uh, shout out to Barrington Moore. I remember as an undergraduate in uh, political science classes going, Oh, this is the kind of political science I like. And, and again, that sort of economistic or, or quantifiable, uh, uh, strand of political science. I, 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 I read a lot of political science, you know, trying to keep up with Southeast Asian studies. And, you know, I can, I I read the case study and then sort of flip through the, uh, uh, that section of the book. Um, Mm -hmm. but this, this, I really, really appreciated. And, um, I thought that your analysis was so nicely interwoven with the the narrative account. It wasn't like you were just presenting the data set, and here's your analysis. So I thought it was a real triumph there. Um, so the book looks at three revolutions, the Filipino, Indonesian, and Vietnamese. Um, as a whole, what, what, what is the overall significance of the Southeast Asian revolutionary tradition or traditions, to the larger world, I think you say something to the effect—I don't have the exact quote here—but this is one of the most important regions in the world to the history of modern revolutions.
0: I, yeah, I, I say that, and, and I think that there's there's some there's some evidence for that in in, in the following ways. So, it, it, but it's not because there's a single kind of revolution. It's in the variety that we see in these three revolutions. So, if you look at the Philippine Revolution at the turn of the 20th century, it has shades of the American revolutions, both North and South American revolutions of the late 18th, early 19th centuries, and also some shades of the kind of 1848 style revolutions, um, you know, and and the sort of back and forth moments that you find. earlier and later in French 19th century history. And, and so that's a, a, a distinctive mode of doing revolution that's there kind of on, on the eve of what, uh, who's the sociologist um, at UNC Chapel Hill, um, I'm blanking on his name, that, who writes this book about democratic revolutions in the early 20th century, these kind of Republican revolutions that you see in Iran um, you know, you see in uh, the Qing dynasty in China, you see in, in Russia with its distinctive outcome and so forth. Um, so, you know, I think there's that. Um, and it, it is of great inspiration to Chinese intellectuals. So the Philippine Revolution, the, the historian Rebecca Carl has shown was of great interest to Kang Wei and
1: Ti Chow and other people like that. Yeah. And, and that makes me think of, um, uh, Nicole swinging with recent book, um, Asian place, Filipino nation about the Philippine revolution and the, uh, the way in which, uh, Chinese intellectuals and revolutionaries really were inspired by the Philippine example. But, um,
0: yeah, she, she has a, that's a great book that I, I, I wish I had read or, or n- knew what she was up to as I was you know, finishing mine. Um, uh, and, you know, she shows various kinds of uh, linkages and connections across uh, East Asia that I, um, you know, am ignoring or overshadowing or, or was, you know, in various ways ignorant of uh, as I was writing. So
1: It works with what you're talking mm-hmm. about and I think really bounce up. And and listeners, by the way, a uh, little self-promotion here, go into the back catalog of New Books in History and there's a I did a podcast interview with um, – with Nicole on Asian place Filipino Nation, but I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah, with that. great book. Great book. I recommend it highly. Um so the Philippine
0: Revolution has that significance for Chinese intellectuals. Um and it also, you know, draws the United States into uh Asia in ways that have, you know, really world historical consequences. If you think of um, you know, American Empire in Asia. Uh, if you think about World War II and so forth, uh, I think that's, you know, that's significant is the, the the coincidence of of the the revolution with uh, the end of Spain's empire um, in Cuba and then in the Philippines, uh, and then the Indonesian revolution. It seems to me is in a way of a piece with a, a whole set of struggles that you find across Asia, Africa, and the Middle East more or less simultaneously that that Robert Malley calls third-worldist, and that we see, um, you know, sort of gathered together uh, for better and for worse in Bandung in 1955, that kind of third-worldist and non-aligned movement style of, you know, kind of loosely avowedly anti-imperialist, anti-colonial revolutions that involve a measure of mass mobilization, but are perhaps messier uh, and, and less monolithically organized than, say, the, the Vietnamese Revolution, um, and that have their own distinctive features and problems and pathologies that Robert Malley's book, *The Call from Algiers*, uh, talks about uh, in, in ways that are insightful if problematic. And then, lastly, the Vietnamese Revolution, you know, I think, is of world historical significance um, as a, you know, not only as a communist party-led uh, armed guerrilla struggle. Uh, that then draws the United States into its infamous uh, forms of intervention in Indochina with all sorts of consequences in American history and for world history. But also if, if you take the, the battle of Dien Ben Phu and then eventually the, the North Vietnamese invasion of South Vietnam in 1975, we can see that there's, there's a conventional um, element of, of warfare. There's no exact equivalent to Dien Ben Phu that we see in other anti-colonial struggles. In, in other um, other such revolutions, that, that I think is distinctive, uh, and and in some ways sets Vietnam apart. But you know, when Just Che Guevara, in,
1: in term in in terms of a, a massive military success, you mean, or, or in terms of a kind of set piece
0: battle, right. right? You know that you don't really see in you know Algeria or you know any other such struggle. Um, but you know, when Che Guevara in 1965 says, you know, we're going to give you one, two, three, you know, many Vietnams. Everyone knows what he means. And, you know, Vietnam is a country, of course, but, you know, he's alluding to it as a a revolution that, that has that kind of, you know, you know, knock it to him kind of, you know, success story quality to it as far as, you know, a certain kind of anti-imperialism and, and one led by communist parties and other revolutionary socialists. So in these three very distinctive ways, I think, you could make a case for Southeast Asian revolutions as, as at least uh, exemplifying different forms of revolution on the eve of and throughout the 20th century, uh, but also leaving in their wake a, a whole set of major world historical uh, kinds of contributions um, with, and consequences.
1: And then as your book shows, there's all these incredible connections um, people, organizations, ideas. I mean, just like that was, you know, a main contribution of the book. And, and in your analysis, you, you say that when you talk about these revolutions, you want to denationalize, internationalize, and transnationalize mm-hmm. um, these, uh, these case studies. So, what, what do you mean by each of these terms? And what are, what are the distinctions between denationalize, internationalize, and transnationalize?
0: Good question. They, they are intertwined and the denationalizing uh, thrust of the book, I think I already alluded to in some measure by noting that uh, I find that this kind of nationalist template of, of struggles that are led by nationalists um, uh, for nationalist goals to be analytically inadequate because it, it, it doesn't allow us to understand how the broad mass of the population was mobilized, if their imagining of the nation was, you know, is it, it, really hard to imagine, or if it, 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 it's it's an assumption too far.
1: Um, it it explains also, the it explains the ilustrados or elite Vietnamese nationalists, uh, you know, like Nguyen Thai Hoc or you know the VNQDD or or yeah. Sukarno and his circle in the in the twenties and thirties, but doesn't get to the vast majority of the the country or the colony or the region right
0: yeah and, and exactly and then if you look at the 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 available set of explanations that that then you see coupled with that elite nationalism so you know the the pamuda in uh, in java uh, that they mobilized in in some measure in inspired by some kind of traditional notion of you know javanese power um, or that there was some distinctly Tagalog notion of kalayaan or freedom, as, uh, as as Ray Leto tells us in his book Passion and Revolution, or you know Alexander Woodside's account of you know sort of Vietnamese sort of culture and consciousness as being more profoundly sort of you know self-conscious and self-confident than other countries. It 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 doesn't really stand the test of comparative analysis or or even historical. Um, you know, sort of, uh, sort of process tracing. So, and the the most stunning example there is the book by Christian Lentz uh, about Dien Bien Phu, where he shows that this incredible victory by the Viet Minh um, is only possible because of the coolie labor and assistance of tens of thousands of non-Vietnamese, non-Vietnamese speaking coolie laborers on the one hand. And then we know from other sources of Chinese advisors, Chinese logistical support, Chinese strategy, Chinese military assistance on the other. So so there's that analytically. And then politically, there's also the urge on my part to denationalize these revolutions insofar as to treat them as nationalist ends up enabling a kind of official nationalist and nation state kind of appropriation of these successes and that's problematic the, the book international it, it, it,
1: it, it's the this, the post colonial states create these teleological narratives right that um, that remove a lot of the also-rans and the and the important side currents i mean i, I think um uh Tamahotai does this really well in her book on radicalisms in the Radicalism in the origin of the Vietnamese Revolution in the 20s and 30s, like people that are 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 written out of the official history coming out of Hanoi, but were definitely part of this uh, intellectual and political ferment in that time period, of which I think one of her her aunts or great aunts uh, played a role. That's right, and other book, yeah, that wonderful book on um, um, I forget what it's called, but Waitam Ho Tai about. uh, the, a, a murder case where her aunt yeah, it all was take place in
0: guangzhou and and then in uh, saigon yeah,
1: yeah 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 i mean it's, just, it's it's really it's really resonates with your story but i'm, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt yeah. so so denationalize um, internationalize it, it the
0: book internationalizes these revolutions in 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 so far as it situates the moments the conjunctures in which uh, these revolutions unfold um, against the backdrop of uh, various international conflicts, world wars, and so forth. Uh, Most obviously World War II with all of its complex consequences that vary very significantly between Vietnam and Indonesia. Um, In the case of the Philippines, there's uh, the Cuban revolution, Um, but there are a whole set of other international conflicts and forms of of, inter-imperialist competition. Um, that are also there in the background. Um, So there's that kind of, uh, you know, backdrop. And also more generally, what I was talking about earlier of a comparative historical sociology, it's not as if each and every one of these countries kind of autonomously develops its own historical sociology, you know, within some kind of hermetically sealed domestic, you know, firewall. Um, But instead, these societies that emerge, these social formations that are already emerging in the early modern era, if not earlier, they're created through long distance trade and war and an interaction that is, you know, is international, if if that's the right word, um, you know, perhaps it's anachronistic um, for, for much of this period. And then transnational or transnationalizing these revolutions By showing how solidarity networks um, and broader kinds of mobilizational and discursive uh, linkages and infrastructures and um, blueprints um, for making revolution were crucial. You know, the Freemasons in in the case of the the Philippine Revolution, um, clearly the communist uh, international, the Comintern uh, and, and various... Um, you know, elements of that in the case of Vietnam and in Indonesia, but also uh, Islam um, in in the case of uh, Indonesia. These are all, you know, transnational dimensions of these revolutions um, that, are, that are crucial.
1: Well, that, that leads me right into the next question I was going to ask you about um, cosmopolitanism. And in this very, very historically informed discussion, you stress the cosmopolitan nature of each of these revolutions, but also of each of these societies, and this, you know, sort of circling back to what you were saying earlier about the cosmopolitan nature of Southeast Asianness, right? Um, so you talk about different forms of cosmopolitanism, ranging from Sanskrit, Sinophone, and Latin cosmopolitanisms to Catholic and Islamic cosmopolitanisms, to, as you just mentioned, Masonic and Marxist cosmopolitanisms. What's the significance of cosmopolitanism as a concept uh, for you and, and how does it work in your analysis of these Southeast Asian revolutions? Mm.
0: That's, that's a, a, a tough question, um, <laughs> especially because, you know, there are uh, whole bodies of literature and political theory um, to which some of my colleagues have interestingly contributed to um, you know, about cosmopolitanism, you know, in, in, in political thought. And I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, I'm not really in touch with an au fait with that literature. So I'm really talking about cosmopolitanisms in, in two distinct, uh, kind of phases, uh, and in two distinct kinds of ways. So the first kind of cosmopolitanism draws its inspiration from Ben Anderson's imagined communities. Where he suggests that prior to the um, arrival and expansion of nationalist forms of imagining and of, of community, uh, that you find what he describes as uh, forms of uh, cosmopolitan belonging that are essentially religious, perhaps, and that he he grounds, um, you know, in concrete terms in the. The languages, the sacred languages of say Latin or Pali or Sanskrit, um, uh, and classical Chinese, um, and, and classical Arabic. Uh, and, and he suggests that insofar as people imagine themselves as part of, uh, local communities, translocal communities, these would have been these forms of, of cosmopolitan belonging that, that are you know, whether they're religious or civilizational and so forth. And and since he wrote the book, we can see in Sheldon Pollock's work, in Ronit Ricci's work, uh, and in other scholars' work on the so-called sinosphere, um, that, that people have d- begun to develop this. Um, and in my case for the book, I think what impresses and interests me most and what I find is most important for setting the stage for and understanding the different outcomes of these three Southeast Asian revolutions um, is something more specific. And that is, if you look at so-called Latin or, or Catholic cosmopolitanism, there are certain specific institutions of the Catholic church, and then certain specific institutions of education and socialization that evolve over time and expand into Forms of education and forms of communication, including by the late 19th century, uh, what people call the, you know, the, the Jesuit Republic of Letters, um, or that extend beyond the control of the Catholic Church into, you know, other forms of uh, education and expression and association, um, you know, beyond the control of these religious orders, um, and and, and morph into you know, Masonic lodges, or you know, free thinkers, or, or, or forms of education that, that are in tension and, and conflict with um, the Catholic Church, and certainly the more conservative, the orders during this late 19th century period. In the case of Islam, we see that um, Islamic educational institutions and Sufi lodges as well, but uh, educational institutions, the madrasa, um, evolve and expand over time And then by the turn of the 20th century, morph into new forms of uh, modernist and reformist experiments uh, in terms of Islamic education. And that these uh, these forms of education and socialization are likewise very significant in terms of uh, the infrastructure they provide for organizing and mobilizing in the Indonesian revolution and before then. In terms of educational and associational activity and trans-local linkages, and then finally, in the case of Vietnam, we can see that the inheritance of uh, a system of sort of classical, you know, so-called Confucian um, education um, in you know classical Chinese philosophy and literature that is passed on over the generations and has a complex history. Uh, that 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 uh, that that uh, system is then abolished um, by the you know by certainly by the second decade of the 20th century, and the elimination of that um, infrastructure for of cosmopolitan you know scholastic endeavor and and socialization and identification the elimination of that eliminates. Kind of conservative and also distinctly patriarchal bulwark against something else that then, you know, in terms of available infrastructure and um, organizational tools, does not have the same sort of counterweight or countervailing power that the Indonesian communists find. during the revolution, in the form of Islamic schools, Islamic leadership, Islamic discourse, Islamic associations, and so forth. There's nothing like that thick on the ground as of nineteen forty-five in Vietnam as a kind of counterweight for communist organizing because of you know what what you, you don't have anymore. And there's nothing in terms of uh, so-called traditional Vietnamese religion th- that would also have that ecclesiastical or institutional form either to, to counter uh, you know a, a, a an infrastructure for making revolution that's grounded in revolutionary socialism Leninism
1: and and of course Marxism is also an attack on the the olds right so that that historic form of uh, Sinaitic Confucian, whatever you want to call it, cosmopolitanism yeah. that's in the crosshairs of the young Marxist revolutionaries or yeah. maybe middle-aged Marxist revolutionaries mm-hmm. at that point. And, and just so I, I don't lose my train of
0: thought, because mm-hmm. I, I said there were two things. And, that, and <laughs> so, so the second thing is that by the, the late 19th century, the deepening integration of Southeast Asia into the world economy makes for this incredibly cosmopolitan public sphere by the turn of the 20th century in all of these port cities and you know in their hinterlands the market towns and we see this in in terms of the the mix of different kinds of people who are there um, we see this in forms of popular entertainment um, that, that are, are wonderfully hybrid in their influences and and their languages and so forth
1: and we, we, we yeah, tell, tell us about that example there of the uh, popular attainment with the um, um in in the I think started in Surabaya, right? The,
0: the comedy Istanbul that yeah, that Cohen has written Stamboul. about so colorfully. Yeah. yeah, um, you know, we we get this great account of these forms of you know popular you know opera or or drama and music that uh, that are uh you know that that really stem from. The Parsi community in Bombay, and that travel across the Indian Ocean into Southeast Asia, and incorporate you know a sort of wonderfully hybrid set of, of different influences into these popular performances that you know that Matthew Cohen tracks across Java and beyond, and we know in the Malay Peninsula as well are really attracting growing audiences by the, the turn of the 20th century. So you get a picture by the you know, by the early 20th century or the late 19th century in the Philippines of uh, port cities and market towns where, you know, news and information and influence and literature and expression you know, is, is really in so many different ways cosmopolitan. And if you think of the, the sort of uh, Chinese and Indian and other Arab, you know, uh, immigrant uh, minorities and their crucial role in intermediation in these local economies, that's just part of a bigger picture of, of you know, really disparate, diverse influences in everyday life.
1: Yeah, I was I was going to ask you about the, um, the uh, the deep economic history you offer and the way in which these. These uh, societies are drawn into different forms of global economic systems, but I think you touched on it there. But I, didn't, I just want to tell the listeners like this is this was a real pleasure for me in reading this book. Um, you know, as a card carrying member of the World History Association, I just I just love this stuff um, because it's it's not just this, you know, this you know, I, I teach the sort of dry economic history of global exchange and so forth and, and, and increasing global connections. But here it is operating on the ground. And like it, we go into the music hall and we see wow. the, um, you know, the uh, the educated Javanese uh, youth uh, rubbing shoulders with um, with a Chinese merchant and um, some Dutch sailors who found their way in there. And they're, and they're, they're Watching the performance of um, maybe a version of Shakespeare or something, where mm. you know, I, I think you referenced that they're performing the the Merchant of Venice and trying to make sense of the Shylock character in in the port town of East Java, and just the incredible levels of cultural and intellectual interaction mm. produced by these deeper, long term economic systems that we, you know, we describe as the world systems. So I, I just, yeah. I found that like the coming together of several different intellectual strands that I work with into this, uh, into this dance hall, you know, into <laughs> this performance, I thought that was, that yeah. was great. And I mean, oh, I, I guess yeah.
0: the, the part of the reason for me to dwell on that is, is to note that that kind of public sphere, that emergence of a, different kinds of modernity and in, in all their hybrid cosmopolitan forms, that there's a great deal of, Um, open-endedness about where this might go. Um, And you see against the backdrop of of these emerging forms of uh, modernity and uh, sort of modern public sphere and sort of all this, these forms of popular expression, entertainment, and consciousness, you do see new forms of cosmopolitan, if that's the right word, uh, better than transnational, it's anachronistic, you know, forms of mobilization and, and, uh, association and new forms of associational activity and politics that are linked you know across the oceans that are transoceanic or transcontinental in their linkages and in their sources of inspiration and
1: uh, and so forth. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then and then in the book you tie that to these larger economic structures such as development of plantations, connections mm-hmm. to uh, global shipping and trade, um, and the way you wove all that together, I just found so incredibly useful. And again, I'm going to be, am going to be flogging this book to my fellow world historians <laughs> saying this is, this is one that you should read that really puts, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, on, uh, in, into these conversations that we're having. Um, y- you have a really interesting, um, literary device. Um, you start each of the case studies, not in the country in question, but far away. I- indeed, rather far away in some uh, times uh, you start talking about the Philippines from the perspective of a small Czech town um, you talk uh, your story of Indonesia begins in Baku. Um, in the Russian empire of all places, um, the Vietnam section begins in Southern China, but then in the space of a par- paragraph or two, I think you take us to West Africa. Um, um, what are you up to here? Um, <laughs> aside from exhausting the reader as we, we, we grab our Atlas or our globe, um, what, uh, what are you, you doing taking the reader on these journeys, these circuitous routes to get to these Southeast Asian revolutions? Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it, w- what was I doing? I, I guess you could say I was just procrastinating, you know, as, <laughs> as, as you know, I, I was just having fun, goofing off, learning about these parts of the world, you know, and, and rather than diving into the, the, the task of telling about these revolutions that other people have written about and researched you know, more deeply than I have. So there's that, I guess. I would wager a guess. There's a little bit of that. But there's, You, got, but there's to, you all- got
1: to show off your Russian language skills. Yeah, that, that was fun. That was fun. I, to I was get I was suitably impressed when I got to that section. I'm like, wait a minute, is he he's citing the Russian text in the original? Wait, wait. <laughs> Went to your personal website. I'm like, okay, he's got Russian. Well, I'm I'm suitably well, impressed. It was okay. nice to get back to the Russian, and and I needed it actually. Yeah, um, but by, by the way, um, uh, years ago, I think as an undergrad, I picked up a copy from the early 1960s. It was from the um, guided democracy era of a. Um, an Bahasa Indonesia primer in Czech and English. Mm. Um, So you can, uh, I was thinking I could learn Indonesian and Czech at the same time, Mm. but it was at that moment of um, international socialist uh, Mm. collaboration. But But, I digress.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are Indonesian Czech connections also, but, but I, I mean, I did have some specific points to make in each one of these, seemingly random digressions. So in in the first case, the Philippine Revolution, I begin in this town um, outside Prague in what today is the Czech Republic. Um, And in in a way you could say I'm I'm showing that even in this far-flung frontier of global Catholicism, there are these connections, there's that. But I'm also making a point about this town that that Filipinos, if they've ever heard of it, or if scholars of the Philippines have heard of it, have heard of it by its German name, Leitmeritz. And this, this character, Ferdinand Blumentritt, who is the close correspondent and, you know, sort of uh, sympathizer and supporter of, of Jose Rizal in the late 19th century, um, is thought of as an Austrian. Uh, and there's no mention of this being a, you know, increasingly Czech-speaking, uh, town and and in fact uh, a town where Czech nationalism has a, a certain kind of um, development in the late 19th century. Uh, so it has a sort of special history in that regard. And yet, revealingly, Blumentritt, who's a great supporter of Rizal, is no friend of Czech nationalism. He he, he instead favors a kind of German speaking, you know, liberalism in, in the late uh, what we, the Habsburg empire, the Austro-Hungarian empire. Um, and, and this, I think really for me it, it is quite relevant because it shows how his sympathy and support for Rizal was not based on a support for nationalism, but a shared, uh, kind of liberalism, uh, perhaps republicanism, but certainly liberalism instead. Um, so that there's that kind of element of the story in the case of Baku, I, there's something closer in, in a way, in, in the sense that there's a parallel between Baku as this crossroads of revolution in the early 20th century and what becomes the Soviet Union and Iran and also the Ottoman Empire as it dissolves. Um, but also as a, an industrial town um, with a significant uh, and in some measure significantly Muslim working class, wage-labored working class, industrial working class, something that the Indonesian archipelago almost uniquely in the Southeast Asian context, not quite, but almost uniquely also has with its industrial scale plantation belts and its incredible network of railroads by the early 20th century. And and but but in the oil industry. Yeah, and and the oil industry emerging as well. And I think... um, that parallel then combines with the famous Baku Congress of the, Pe- the peoples of the East in 1920 to allow me to bring together these two strands um, of the story of the Indonesian revolution in the book, which is of Islam and communism, uh, two potentially powerful bases for mobilization against imperialism, against colonialism, um, which have the potential to combine uh, but then end up in conflict instead, uh, and and we see that at the Congress of the Peoples of the East, and then in the subsequent Common Turn Congresses in Moscow a few years later. So that's right. the that's the excuse for for Baku, and then and, finally and
1: Tan, Tan, Tan Malaka, early uh, PKI leaders. He's not in Baku, but he's at no. the Common Turn conferences, trying to make this pitch for. Um, uh, linking Islam and uh, and communism, and, and that's that's stemming from the as you, you lay out the the Serikat Islam tradition and the um the um the 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 left faction of the, the Sarekat Islam is it Sarekat mm-hmm. Islam Mera? yeah um, and the say, uh, yeah. That, that Marxist yeah. tradition which you know gets gets written out of a lot of history in Indonesia. Um, hmm. My friend Bonnie Triana who runs uh, Historia uh, magazine. In, in Jakarta is um is always talking about that. And they were um trying to uh, like make the argument to fellow Indonesians, like, look, hey, Serikat Islam had this Marxist component mm-hmm. and that many of those members saw themselves as good Muslims. Yeah. Like Muslims. And, and that was that was possible. Right. Yeah. I- impossible to imagine in a post New Order Suharto education, mm-hmm. right? Like that most of the scholars have like that's just impossible. But as you lay out in the book and as as, as does in, in his work, like this this was a thing. Mm. And and yeah. embodied in these spirits of, of Baku and and uh Tom Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um so that's Baku. And then lastly in the Vietnamese chapter, and and to link back to your your point about the world economy, um you know it, it it's the case that The book, among other things, tries to show how the the process of integration of these different parts of Southeast Asia and the world economy does not unfold through simple uh, dyadic colonial sort of pulls to the metropolitan community, but how, in fact, um, the sources of investment uh, and the linkages of trade go in all sorts of... Other directions as well. So, in the case of Vietnam, your uh, what you see is that the, the the Vietnamese and Indochinese economy is closely linked with that of southern China, and in particular uh, Guangdong and Guangzhou. So that it's as it were no coincidence um, that that kind of linkage is there. Just as you know, resolve ending up in Europe. Uh, and ending up in, you know, near my neighborhood here in London uh, for a time or in Germany is a reflection of the, the prevalence of British and German firms uh, over, you know, far far more significant than Spanish firms in the late 19th century in the colonial Philippines. So, um, so that helps to set the stage for Guangzhou, whereas, you, know, you know, there was a great deal of uh, revolutionary agitation and activism as a base for a succession of different movements and and operators, uh, especially from the 1920s onwards, um, that were crucial for uh, the making of revolution in Vietnam. Uh, But then I I also briefly mentioned the the capital cities of what became Benin in West Africa and Madagascar off the coast of Southern Africa as other uh, cities of relevance because of the close... Connections that Vietnamese revolutionaries like the man we know as Ho Chi Minh developed with African anti-colonial activists in Paris in, in the 1920s, the way in which he, as they, thought about the importance of what they called intercolonial collaboration and um, the way in which the Vietnamese revolution, as it began to unfold between 1945 and 1954, intersected with French struggles uh, to hold things together in the the African possessions of the empire, and again in economic terms, how some of the profits developed um, from French exploitation of uh, Indochine uh, and uh, economic activity in southern China were then recycled into investments and activities in Africa, and the shipping routes began to reflect this, so that Ho Chi Minh, by the time he arrived in Paris, had spent you know weeks and months. You know uh, passing through African ports and working with Africans on on the, the shipping routes so th- there's that kind of underlying economic uh, logic there that's you know that's also worthy of note
1: yeah and, and one of the things that I, I really appreciated is that you know you start off that chapter um, in that discussion of the Vietnamese Revolution making these connections between Madagascar and West Africa and and then you you know through uh, Ho Chi Minh's trajectory, we go to Paris. We see his work with La Pariah, and that his consciousness there is is yes, Vietnamese revolution, but but really, pan anti colonialism, right? Um, and uh, there, I mean, he, you talk about the the articles he writes on um, on uh, French colonial abuses in Algeria and West Africa, and and that's all part of his consciousness. And then fast forward a couple of decades oh. to I think it's forty-seven or forty-eight, and For and um, the the Viet Minh are making a big military push, and they're able to to get the upper hand at one point because the French have to divert troops from Andochine to Madagascar, and that there that in throughout these anti-colonial struggles, there is this transnational or sort of pan-colonial or, pan subaltern I'm not quite sure what the right <laughs> term would be but they're 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 working together in one point they're they're sort of sharing different parts of the struggle against the French Empire at this later stage I, I, the way you tied those together I just thought was really enlightening and really fascinating
0: well thank you I mean but it I, I should reiterate that it's all building on the research of other scholars yeah. who've shown this you know who, who've 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 done this incredible research, um, connecting these different, disparate uh, struggles and and uh,
1: people and places. Yeah. So so speaking of the end of revolutions, um, one thing I noticed is that um, you you sort of stop around the point of uh, formal political independence for Indonesia, or Vietnam. Or with the establishment of American rule in the Philippines, but these revolutions carry on. Um, Sukarno famously spoke of uh, "revolusi belum" the the unfinished revolution. Um, and the Vietnamese communists took uh, their country through a series of revolutionary turns in the sixties and seventies and into the nineteen eighties. Um, and then, you know, famously, Joan La uh, is supposedly quipped to Nixon that he would have an opinion on the French Revolution once it was over. Um, sadly, he it, it appears he was talking about 1968, uh-huh. not 1789. But you know, sometimes the story is better than the the actual uh, the actual facts. But prefer I prefer the apocryphal story. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, I guess what I'm getting at here is like you know, how, how do we say a revolution is over? And, and what was, you know, what went into your decision-making on, on when to sort of stop your analysis? Mm.
0: It's a great question. And in, in a way, it, the book that, you know, that owes so much to Ben Anderson, um, it gives him appropriately the last word, uh, I think quoting him because, you know, he, he talks about this, the aspiration for, 100% merdeka, 100% freedom that, that is there, whatever that might mean. I mean, what, what, what would 100% freedom look like anywhere and to anyone um, that, that we see uh, in the Indonesian revolution unrealized? And he he ends his book on Javanatai revolution with this idea that the, the hope for that is still with us. And he's writing in 1972 when we know the Suharto military dictatorship is... Suppressing all sorts of hopes for freedom, um, so you know I think it, it is a it is something that you know I I am trying to deal with more uh, elusively than extensively and explicitly in in these three cases. But I, I think I, I have an answer in each case. So in the case of the Philippine Revolution, you know part of the puzzle about Philippine history, if you think of it in purely nationalist terms, is why you get the first revolution, uh, supposedly nationalist revolution in Southeast Asian history, and then you don't get all that much um, in terms of nationalist mobilization, uh, push for you know, uh, the overthrow of American colonial rule, um, and you have a fairly well-staged managed decolonization that leaves the Philippines looking very neo-colonial in, in many critics' uh, eyes. And I think the, the book suggests quite consistently with its account of the Philippine revolution as a revolution that's, that's really a liberal, uh, perhaps Republican revolution, overthrowing crown and church, as a revolution whose, whose kind of leaders and main protagonists uh, end up, you know, in a sense, winning. You know, they may be defeated by the United States um, very violently, But they're then um, incorporated and empowered under a regime in which the Catholic Church has been uh, relegated to the role of a kind of civil religion, uh, has lost its lands, its monopoly uh, over uh, education uh, and control of the public sphere, uh, and its role in sort of dictating the terms of local politics, uh, and in which... You know, the, the ruling class can rule. These local worthies, local notables, local Chinese mestizo landowners and merchants um, who are represented in, in, in the revolution, they then triumph under American rule and they're, they're
1: still running the country today. In, in, um, in a way that they wouldn't have been able to under Spanish rule?
0: Well, they were still constrained by yeah. the Catholic Church mm-hmm. uh, and the religious orders in particular. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, just as, in, in parts of Europe, including Spain, that kind of tension and conflict means a, a sort of back and forth between liberal and conservative uh, modes of politics in the late 19th century. That's, that's the real struggle in the Philippines. Um, so, yeah, they needed to throw off the shackles of the church in the, in the form that it assumed uh, in terms of power uh, in the late 19th century Philippines. In the case of Indonesia, I think, um, you know, that slogan of Sukarno's nasakom, uh, in which nationalism, agama or religion and communism were conveniently united under his leadership, um, that in in a sense captures what he then tries to hold together and impose um, following independence. But what we see is the, you know, in a way, the Extinguishing of the emancipatory energies and mobilizational potential for these forms of politics that were so diverse and mobilized and in some localities, very revolutionary, um, anti-aristocratic, violent, disruptive, um, egalitarian in in different ways during the revolution, and then are over the 1950s and 1960s, um, either co-opted, absorbed, appropriated by the reconstituted post-colonial state under Sukarno and then under Suharto, or violently suppressed and you know, exterminated with the, the communists uh, in 65 and 66. And, and so, it's not
1: just the communists that are slaughtered. It's non-communist union organizers, feminist groups, intellectuals, artists on the wrong side um sure because i mean and- I, I i just to gently push back on that i mean it sure the Madiona uh, so-called Madiona affair sort of stops mm-hmm. the pki at that moment but then with um uh, adit's different strategy and then the popular sort of popular front and and fellow traveler organizations by the time we get to the early 60s i mean there's there is a widespread ferment that is not just political, but social, especially in terms of women, seems very emancipatory. But as you said, that that gets killed in the uh, the Thermidor, the counter-revolution, the, the slaughter yeah. of 65, 66, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you could say, you know, over the course of the 1950s, um, the reconstitution of a, a kind of authoritarian post-colonial state. First, they pick off various forms of autonomous oppositional Islamic organizing, Masyumi, um, the Darul al- Dar islam, islam movement, yep. you know, all yep. of that is eliminated. And then, I mean, the, the the PKI is is caught in a very difficult situation in which it, it has committed itself to parliamentary above ground um, organizing rather than armed struggle. And it's also aligned itself with Sukarno so much that it it actually restrains it tries to restrain its mass base from striking um, you get the oxysa uh, mobilization in the countryside especially in East Java and central Java and, and but the, the PKI is very nervous about allowing too much mobilization that will you know provoke the ire of its patron so I think then their encapsulation Sadly, sets the stage for their extermination, um, and then you know the, the Vietnamese case. You know, I, I hear you about subsequent forms of revolution, but the the monolithic quality, the monop- monopolistic quality of the uh, Indonesian of the Vietnamese revolution, in contrast with the Indonesian revolution, which is more open ended and fluid, that allows for the preservation of. You know, what you still have to this day as a form of, you know, post-independence uh, state power and appropriation of that, the energies and emancipatory promises um, of the revolution in, you know, Leninist form.
1: Um, yeah. And that's set in stone by yeah. 1954, right? I mean, yeah. and, then, and then it takes 15 more years, 20 more years, but then that becomes the model for all of a, of a united Vietnam after 75. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that, okay. I Yeah. You do have to end the book somewhere. I mean, it was a pleasure to read, but it does have to have to end. Right. Um, I mean, in this discussion, I mean, maybe less so for the Philippines, but uh, for Indonesia and Vietnam raises the issue of uh, territorial integrity. Um, mm-hmm. sure, in 1949 this new thing called Indonesia, which had never really existed, right I'm gonna get in trouble with some Indonesian nationalists there, but um this is you know the the colonial boundaries um, have been have been taken over, but then within a decade there's serious challenges with this the Permesta rebellion and the mm-hmm. tide with Dar Islam um, mm-hmm. and, in, and the United States not helping matters at all, uh, all encouraging right. Right. Them. Um, yeah, regional rebellion for for Cold War purposes, mm. um, and then and Vietnam also having this issue of um, sure the French are gone in '54, but they haven't achieved the goal of national uh, mm. uh, uh, integration. Mm. Um, it doesn't doesn't really work for the Philippines. Um, although I guess you could say there's a, a renewed pressure from the Catholic North on the 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 Moro land, uh so-called Moro land after um after independence. But anyway, what I'm just sort of getting at is it's this there, there's so many aspects of these revolutions that you're talking about. And we've been talking uh we have, haven't really talked about this this whole notion of what is the land that makes the nation. Mm. And that still still is worked out after 49 in Indonesia, after 54 in Vietnam. And, uh, you yeah, I'll, I'll throw it out there after 46 in the Philippines with um, the ongoing uh, issues in the moral land. But
0: yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that in terms of those sorts of issues, you know, imagine communities has been proven, you know, so right in terms of, yeah, yeah. you know, in, in terms of telling us how and why um, a commitment to a, uh, you know, what turns out to be a, a pretty stable, successful, bounded map of a nation state, you know, it persists um, in the face of some resistance and resentment and with some wrinkles, to be sure. To this day, I think, you know, my account is more within that frame, you know, the unrecognized, what you call the also rants you know, to show that in the Indonesian revolution, that Islam and communism are not thwarting revolution. They're it. I mean, if you didn't have... Islam and communism as bedrocks of revolutionary mobilization, the revolution wouldn't have succeeded. Um, and, and so it's, it's within that frame that Anderson sets for us that in the puzzle that he successfully answers that the book is trying to, to kind of show, you know, what remaining puzzles that he, he raises, um, you know, we might understand in a, in a frame beyond that nationalist template that
1: he's left us. Right. Right. And also I'd throw a shout out to, um, uh, Anderson's, um, under three flags. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. Which, um in, in some ways I, 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 thought of more while reading your book. Um, and, uh, his, his, his look at international, uh, anarchism and, and Jose Rizal and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is fabulous, but you know, revolutions and podcasts do have to come to an end at some point <laughs> um, and you've been really generous with your time, but I've got, i got just two more questions for you. Um, first, can you suggest two books to the listeners, um, um, that, that we should rush out and, and check out in, Sure. in addition to imagine communities and Under three flags.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, yeah, there's so many great books that I read in the making of this book. Um, that are there. So you'll, you'll see them in the footnotes after you've, you've all
1: I, bought the your, book. your footnotes were wonderful too. I mean, they were, and it was fun seeing a lot of friends, but I mean, it just the level of research there was just fantastic.
0: But. Well, thank you. I mean, I was just grateful to Cornell university press for allowing me to keep them as footnotes so people could see who I'm drawing on. Cause otherwise mm-hmm. I would have had to fill the, the text with, you know, the names of every historian who I'm borrowing from, yes, so it's great that it's right there, so you can see who, who who deserves the credit for the research. In in terms of books that people interested in my book might, in different ways, be interested in, the two books that come to mind are uh, recent uh, books published by Columbia University Press. Um, one is by someone named Lior Halevi and it's called Modern Things on Trial, Islam's Global and Material Reformation in the Age of Rida, 1865 to 1935. And that's published by Columbia University Press in 2019. And it looks at the uh, the famous uh, publication Almanar um, that Rashid Rida um, uh, edited and that he published and, and wrote for over that period. Um, and it, it shows two things. One, that uh, he didn't do it himself without um, the spur of a readership that uh, stretched as far as Java and, uh, and as far south to the, you know, the Cape of Good Hope um, in terms of Muslim readers who wrote in and, and posed questions and asked for guidance. And, and, and the, the sort of call and response was the making of the journal. So it shows the kind of co-creation of the journal, not just by this one famous uh, Muslim, uh, Islamic, or even Islamist intellectual, but by a, a sort of you know globe-spanning uh, Muslim audience. But it also shows the the way in which. Um, the kinds of things that preoccupied people at this at this period in history as uh, the world economy was beginning to draw them into new kinds of problems and questions and dilemmas like toilet paper. Is toilet paper halal? Um, you know, or what about the gramophone? And, and these sorts of debates and discussions about uh, what to make of, you know, modernity in different forms uh, is, you know, is, is really interestingly discussed in the book. Um, as it was by Rita and, and the, the people who wrote into it. Great. And so that's one book I would really recommend. I, I, that was really eye-opening in, in all sorts of ways uh, that I could rant on about. And then the other book that I read more recently um, that has a very a different uh, element of my book in, 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 uh, in, in its kind of um, inflection is Peter Hamilton's book, Made in Hong Kong, Trans-Pacific Networks, and A New History of Globalization that was published last year, 2020, by Columbia University Press. And that talks about uh, this kind of generation of business uh, men and women in Hong Kong, um, who many of whom had moved to Hong Kong from a certain part of China, um, in and around Shanghai in particular, developed certain kinds of businesses develop certain kinds of educational and religious affiliations and linkages to the United States in particular. And then in due course, used these sorts of connections and these these sorts of forms of what we say, social, cultural, intellectual capital, not only to make for business and social success in Hong Kong, but then to play a crucial role in uh, the the key moments in the, the 80s, 90s, even earlier, but really the eighties and nineties that drew the people's Republic of China into the world economy through Hong Kong's intermediation and through their roles. And that, that was a, a great book. Um, so, so these two books I think in different ways are, uh, are linked to mine in terms of diverse interests, but they're also just great books. You know, they're amazing.
1: Yeah. Good. Um, and finally, what are you working on now and what can we hope to see from you next? <sighs>
0: Um, well, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I've been doing lots of different things over the, the many years that I was working and not working on this book. <laughs> and so the other projects I have are in you know, equally sort of far-flung, disparate and and perhaps some might think uh, dilettantish. So you know, sort of late in life, I've developed a sort of quirky interest in the politics of transport. And transport mm-hmm. infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, someone who, who never played with trains as a boy, or you know, ran in fast cars as a young man. Um, in the Philippine context, uh, I've gotten very interested in all sorts of different kind of political and economic uh, policy issues and and problems associated not only with traffic and congestion, but with the uh, the wealth and power um, that is associated with you know, with airports, with, uh, highways, with, uh, the embryonic train lines and even subway that's being built and with different forms of transport, um, around which all sorts of economic and political activity is organized. And I've also been inspired by a, a set of, uh, sort of urban transport reform advocates, who I've come to know and, and work with and 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 I think what they're doing is very interesting and exciting so so I'm just intrigued by all sorts of very um, you know seemingly you know either mundane or obscure details about motorcycle taxis and jeepneys and choices about airport terminals and you know, all sorts of things like that 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 I, I've suddenly found interesting and I'm, I'm I've written a little bit about and I have the workings of a book. Um, to come on that very different from this one. And then the other thing that's related to this book um, is a book about Islam in, in world politics and the title, is something like the the Making Unmaking and Remaking of Islam and World Politics that begins in the late 19th century and carries up into the early 21st century based on a course I've been teaching at the LSE since 2005 that sort of shows these, these sort of cycles, the kind of rise and fall of Islam as a discursive and mobilizational force in world politics in the late 19th uh, and early 20th century, then subsides and then reemerges by the 1970s, 1980s after the Islamic revolution in Iran. And again, now seems to be subsiding. These two sort of you know rises and falls of Islam as a force in world politics, uh, exaggerated, misunderstood, demonized, and used for Islamophobic purposes, but still important in its consequences. Um, And uh, I'd like to spell that out in a book-length
1: study. So those are the
0: two big things to-
1: to Yeah, those sound like like great projects and I look forward to seeing those. Well, um, I'll
0: spend a long time working on them and have a lot of fun and hopefully I'll finish (laughs) at least one of them eventually.
1: (laughs) Um, So um, thank you so much for chatting with me. Uh, I've really enjoyed this.
0: Thanks for having me. It's been a real treat. Uh, Nice to uh, speak with you and uh, to finally meet you after all this time.
1: So this has been a conversation with John T. Seidel of the uh, the, the London School of Economics and Political Science about Republicanism, Communism, Islam, Cosmopolitan Origins of Revolution in Southeast Asia, out with Cornell University Press in 2021. I'm your host Michael Van of Sacramento State University and this has been an episode of New Books in History a channel on the New Books network thank you for listening